I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and that if you haven't turned there already in anticipation of our time in this text, that you'll turn to Matthew 12 and verse 9. You'll find this text on page 817 of the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs for you, and as I seek to say often, if one of those Bibles would bless you or you know that it would bless someone else, please feel free to take it, keep it, or give it to somebody else. Matthew 12, verse 9, page 817 in the backs, and the Bible's in the backs of the chairs. Well, we've been considering this section of Matthew's gospel in our series called The Unexpected Kingdom over the last several weeks. In fact, it's been several months because we took a pause during the Easter season, and then we also heard from Brian Russell, our mission partner, last week. We were all greatly blessed by his ministry from the word to us last week. So it was two weeks ago that we considered together the passage preceding our text for today, Matthew 12, 1 through 8. And we looked at legalism and mercy together in that passage. And it is essential to understand that that passage and the one before us today and the next one are tied together as a group and are also connected to the end of chapter 11 that precedes it. What Matthew is doing in chapter 12 is directing his readers' attention to examples about why Jesus could make the claims that he made in verses previous. And the kind of call that he made to all who are weary and need rest to come to him. As we looked at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, we saw three issues that the passage identified. An issue of Jesus' authority over the law. That's the main point of this whole thing. Also the issue of grace and love and mercy being more central than rule following. And then third, the issue of the Pharisees' extra-biblical, legalistic laws that they developed as a fence around the law. Now, twice in our series so far, I've defined legalism as a distortion of the relationship between the law and grace. You could also say it as a distorted understanding of the relationship between the law and and grace. We've seen together already that it can look like many different things, that it can display itself in several ways, but at its heart, legalism distorts the grace of God and the law of God, and therefore it can affect the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. And it can even contribute, we've seen, to a local church's culture, the sort of atmosphere in a church of critical self-righteousness. And so those were the three issues in the text previous. Jesus's authority, the importance of grace, and what exactly was and is and wasn't and isn't lawful. And I actually think I could have saved some of what I said last week about mercy for this passage, because it is very much at the heart of this event that Matthew records for us in verses 9 through 14, and what he shows us about Jesus and about legalism here. 
the situation, just to set up the context for you, if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, is that Jesus and his disciples were traveling, are on the way to synagogue, as verse 9 tells us, which we already heard Kitty read to us, and Jesus has this run-in with the Pharisees in verses 1 through 8, because his disciples grabbed some grain from the fringes of the fields for a little snack. But the Pharisees were not upset because the disciples were breaking God's law. They were upset because harvesting grain for a snack broke their law. Those fences around God's law, their traditions, their extra laws that were in theory supposed to help God's people with examples of how to follow God's law, but that actually wound up going beyond God's law and that wound up creating a standard of righteousness that was not actually in line with God's standard. And so thus, the Pharisees were unhappy about this little grain snack, perhaps that age's version of a granola bar, and Jesus corrects them by telling them that what the disciples were doing was not actually unlawful. And then in verse 9, they arrive at the synagogue, and this is what happens. Starting in verse 10, a man was there with a withered hand, and they said to him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And so Matthew begins by showing us these Pharisees' disingenuous inquiry. It says at the end of our passage in verse 14 that they conspired against him how to destroy him. Their inquiry, verse 10 tells us, was about trapping him. The Pharisees want to continue their argument with Jesus regarding the Sabbath because Jesus had just called himself in the, in the passage previous the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. And so these guys are like, okay, you're the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. Answer us this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And apparently, this synagogue had, it seems, a regular attender with a disability. A withered hand, the text tells us. And it seems like what Matthew was telling us is that these Pharisees have this man in mind when they ask Jesus about whether or not he thinks healing on the Sabbath is lawful. And then Matthew tells us that they're not genuinely asking a question. They're disingenuous with their inquiry. They want to accuse Jesus. They want to get him in trouble somehow. Legal trouble. Because they would have said there are laws regarding administering medical treatment on the Sabbath. You see, under their extra biblical rules and traditions, it was actually the law, their law, not God's law, that you could not receive medical treatment on the Sabbath unless you were dying or about to die. Save a life, okay, I guess we can allow that, but set a broken arm, nope. Have to wait until Sunday. Can't do it on Saturday. Bandage a wound? Nope. That's work for the doctor. 
So go to the doctor for some medicine. Nope, sorry, once again, that would make the doctor work. So that's strictly forbidden. Bandage tying, bone setting, medicine administering, all forbidden by these scribal and pharisaical traditions and laws on the Sabbath. In fact, and this certainly was not the case with all of them, but there were some rabbis who even forbade prayer for the sick on the Sabbath because pursuing health in any way was work. And so these Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus. And apparently they were pretty sure, and it turns out they were right, that he was going to say that healing on the Sabbath was allowed, and they figured they were setting a brilliant trap for him. Their inquiry was disingenuous because they weren't interested in learning from Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus, and they wanted ultimately to get rid of him, which verse 14 tells us. Even when he performs the miracle of the healing that Katie read for us just a moment ago at the end of this passage, thus shutting the door on them, so to speak, regarding being able to accuse him of being a fraud or a blasphemer, they get angry and they leave. And verse 14 tells us this is when their evil plan to kill him really gets kick-started. The disingenuous nature of their inquiry is revealed as revealed to us by Matthew shows us that they're interested in protecting their legalistic legacy, not learning. And so Matthew begins by showing us this inquiry, and then he shows us Jesus' denouncement of their inconsistency. In verses 11 through 12, Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, you can't fool Jesus. He knows all, he sees all, he knows what they're up to, and he knows that these pharisaical man-made laws about not healing on the Sabbath were ultimately inconsistent. As I said a moment ago, you could only be healed or medically cared for in some way if your life was threatened. But as it turns out, at the same time, you were allowed to rescue your animal, your livestock, on the Sabbath if it was in trouble. And there is a history behind this, actually. If you look back, it didn't start this way. For years, the Jews were not allowed to rescue their animals if they were in trouble or in a ditch or something. But eventually, the Pharisees changed their ruling, and you were allowed to rescue your animal from peril for various reasons, probably including monetary ones. And even that is kind of frustrating and confusing to us, too, isn't it? It's kind of inconsistent. I remember at the rather conservative Christian college that I attended as a young man, they had some very strict hair standards. The length of your hair and the, the length of your sideburns going no farther than that little piece of skin. I don't even know what you call it in the middle of your ear. You couldn't let your hair go, your sideburns go any lower than that. You couldn't let your hair grow long unless you were in a dramatic production and it had something to do with your costume or your, your character. But in order to make sure that no one thinks you are being so worldly as to have your sideburns longer or your beard grown or your hair longer, you had to wear a pin that said cast member. But then you say, 
well, what if this student goes into town? Now their worldliness is evident for all to see. If it truly is worldly, then shouldn't we just not do it at all? It's the kind of frustration that an inconsistency that can surface when legalism is at play. It can get a little mind-boggling, and it's the kind of thing that's happening here in our text. At one point, it was sin to help your animal, but now, no, we've decided it's not sin to do that. So was it never sin, or is it just not now sin? And you just realize later that all these people could have rescued their animals. Shouldn't somebody pay for all those animals that died or were injured? It's inconsistent. Unjust. So Jesus denounces this inconsistency and he poignantly appeals to common sense here. In the passage previous, he he pointed to three scripture passages as evidence for his point. But here in verses 11 and 12, he just points out the common sense that it takes to see this inconsistency. He's saying something like, okay, so you're telling me it's okay to pull your sheep out of a pit, but not with pulling someone out of their physical ailment? Isn't it interesting that animals can very easily pull at our heartstrings? We've had multiple members of our church over the years be participants in the Adams County Fair or 4-H or some other things, and I recall a member at one point, a member who's no longer here, but talking of the challenge of raising these animals and coming close to them they're essentially your pets and then you have to bring them to the fair for purchase and eventual slaughter there's another member of another church i was a member at previously where this guy told a similar story and talked about the great trauma that it brought to their children such that they made a rule in their family it's a phrase you've heard before but they meant it in a different way and that rule was don't play with your food And so animals are valuable to us, and they should be. And perhaps Jesus is intentionally seeking to pull at the heartstrings of those present in this moment, saying, if the well-being of a precious and beloved pet is worth some sweat and effort on the Sabbath, how much more should your heartstrings of compassion be tugged at when you see your fellow man in great need? So this is another kind of twist that legalism can impose on God's intentions for his law. The Sabbath was about rest. It was about acknowledging the Lord as holy. It was about moving toward him in dependence and in a relationship with him. Jesus actually says it this way in Mark's account of this same interaction we have in Matthew 12, but Mark's perspective on it. Verse 27, he actually says this too. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so part of what Jesus is getting at here is this. Withholding care from someone with some kind of need that you can meet doesn't at all uphold the spirit of the Sabbath. In fact, in a way, you could say it violates it. Because Jesus says then in our text, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But the problem is the Pharisees had made an idol 
out of an application. The law did not require withholding medical treatment or care for the sick and needy, but they did in their legalistic devotion to an application of one way, perhaps to seek to not work on the Sabbath. These were their legalistic efforts to uphold the law. Friends, we must see in this text the importance of love and of grace and of mercy and the importance of the spirit of the law. And I I believe I said this just a few weeks ago, but I'm saying it again. Sometimes an obsession with following the letter of the law can lead us to set up extra-biblical laws that violate the spirit of the law out of fear of transgressing it or because of a belief that our identity, our standing with God, our prestige and influence in his kingdom is going to be affected one way or the other by how well or not we follow it. The irony of this situation is that the Pharisees' lack of correct emphasis or understanding on the spirit of the Sabbath, which is the good of man and the glory of God, led them down a path that I think you can say wound up in basically unlawful territory. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, but they were withholding it. And so first, this disingenuous inquiry. Secondly, Jesus denouncing their inconsistency. And then third, Jesus' demonstrative intervention. You see that in verse 13. After he asks them this question, he says to the man, the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Perhaps your Bible has a heading in it on this section that we're reading and studying together, like my ESV does, The Man with a Withered Hand. Sounds an awful lot like a 1970s sci-fi B movie to me, but it's not. This is a real man in history with a real medical condition. This word withered is a word that essentially means dried up from paralysis. It's dead, his hand. Have you ever fallen asleep on your arm or your hand and you wake up? I remember the first time this ever happened to me, I was genuinely terrified that my hand was dead forever. It's a very strange feeling, isn't it, when you've got nothing going on, whether it's your shoulder down, your elbow down, your wrist down, whatever it might be. This is the closest we could get, perhaps, to what it felt like for this guy every day and for who knows how long. And after making his case against these Pharisees' inconsistency, after their attempt at setting a trap for him, Jesus tells this man, who Matthew drew our attention to in verse 10, to stretch out his hand. Now, I really love the additional details that we get from Mark's and Luke's gospel accounts regarding this episode. I think they're really helpful. Look at, I'm just going to put it on the screen for you, Mark 3, 3. He says to the man with the withered hand, Come here. 
which is not exactly what it says in Matthew 12. Mark adds that little perspective piece there. Jesus calls this man from his position, whether he was seated or standing somewhere in the synagogue in a gathering not totally unlike ours today. He draws attention to this man and he asks him to move so everyone can see him. And then he asks the Pharisees in front of this whole congregation, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They can't answer. They can't say no because they'll look like the snakes that John the Baptist called them. And if they say yes, then Jesus will have won, and they can't have that. So they're silent. And then Mark gives us a window into Jesus' heart and mindset. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He's grieved at their legalism, and then just like in verse 13 of our text in Matthew 12, he calls the man to stretch out his hand, and our text tells us the man obeys, and miraculously, the man's hand is restored. This man's life is totally transformed. You think about how different it was for people with disabilities at that time than it is today. It is still very much a tough time for people with disabilities today, and we need to have compassion on them and help whenever we can. And also, the truth of the matter is, it was harder then. And so for this man to have the use of his hand back like the other, the text says, would have transformed his life. And so if the Pharisees were essentially, with their disingenuous inquiry, casting doubt on Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath, and what Jesus was doing when he healed this man was proving that he did have the authority to heal and that he was himself that Lord of the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Watch me, Jesus says. You know, Jesus could have waited to heal that man until the next day. The man's life wasn't threatened. Could have chosen to follow that tradition, that application. But Jesus was making two important points. A point about his authority and a point about the legality of doing good on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus' healing wasn't just a defiance of the Pharisees' disingenuous inquiry, it was also a demonstrative intervention in two ways. In intervening upon the proper understanding of the Jews in that region about what was lawful or not on the Sabbath, and also a demonstrative intervention upon the forces of nature with his power as the creator to take this paralyzed, dried up, withered hand and give it life. A demonstration that he is Lord, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he is Lord of creation who has power to bring life to a dead, shriveled up hand to restore what has been broken by the curse of sin in this world just as he takes spiritually dead, shriveled up hearts 
and raises them to life again for all eternity. And so this demonstrative intervention was a clear display of Christ's lordship and a display of how his people ought to have thought about the Sabbath. It was for their good. It was not to burden them. So there it is, the Lord of the Sabbath demonstrating his lordship after denouncing their inconsistency, after the Pharisees' disingenuous inquiry. But we must also ask, what is this text teaching us in our context? And so I'd like to point to seven principles that I see in this passage regarding legalism. We are in a different context. We are under a new covenant. We are not in the same stage of redemptive history as the Jews here. This whole episode, verses 1 through 21, isn't really ultimately about how New Testament Christians need to think about the Sabbath, I don't think. It certainly sparks the conversation, and it is very much worth having how we think about Saturdays now and Sundays being the Lord's Day and how we treat Sundays and what we do on them and what we don't do on them. It's certainly a conversation worth happening. But I think the Lordship of Christ and the relationship of the law and grace is what's at the heart of this for us. And so first principle is that legalism often cares more about winning arguments than getting things right. And I'm going to use this word often in every single one of these principles because I do not want to paint with a broad brush and suggest that it is always the same in every person in every situation. But one principle, or seven of them, (laughs) are that they often can do things like this. Getting it right is, in theory, a good motivation, and it's a motivation behind legalism. We want to get things right. It is good to be righteous and truthful and just and all these things. But sometimes, in legalism, getting it right is less the goal than looking right. And that is what happened with the Pharisees in this passage. They did not receive the teaching of the Messiah because they wanted to win. They wanted to trap him. So when they didn't win, they just got mad. And that's why sometimes in our day, when Christians in local churches are wronged, the goal of restoration can sometimes take a back seat because one or more of the parties in some sort of a dispute can become more interested in defending themselves, proving their point, getting rather than getting to the end goal of making things right. And what happens then? Forgiveness is not extended. Repentance doesn't take place. Restoration isn't happening. It's just a bunch of blame shifting, flying around, and excuses being made. What a mess. But if getting it right, so to speak, really is the goal, then getting There, getting to rightness matters more than winning. And if getting to rightness means sometimes having to extend some grace from one broken person to another or giving someone the benefit of the doubt in a conversation, then we ought to do that. Second principle is that legalism often prefers to focus on criticism than to acknowledge good. Legalism often notices and criticizes imperfections in others' lives in order to judge them 
before they notice and praise what's good and right in order to encourage them. Let me say that again. Legalism often notices and criticizes imperfections in others' lives in order to judge them rather than noticing the good and the right in order to encourage them. For example, let's say here at Redeemer at our church, there's a particular member here that's overall doing well, growing in Christ, faithful to gather with the body, pursuing holiness, serving the church. But like everyone else, they're off on some things. Because not everybody can get everything right. And so they've got some quirks. They've got some foibles. They've got some shortcomings. Perhaps there's some spiritual maturity needed in a certain way. Well, legalism focuses on those shortcomings, not on the good that God is doing in them and through them. And you know, part of the reason that legalism does this and that legalistic people do this is because it can actually provide quite a rush of assurance for a legalist to notice that someone is doing a poorer job than them in some particular area. Because legalism has this distorted view of the law and grace and is under the impression that the way to obtain or maintain God's favor is to measure up and to keep measuring up according to the rules or standards that are often stricter than God's word actually requires. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Their Sabbath laws were more strict than God's. And so, like the Pharisees, a legalist may see another child of God not measuring up according to their subjective convictions and then notice it and point it out and just reinforces their feeling of superiority and it makes them feel good about themselves. And then suddenly the goodness that's taking place in the synagogue that day that our text records this healing of a needy and and broken man is no longer the focus of the attention. Their criticism of others not keeping their standard is. You know, that's why in a different event, these religious leaders, instead of rejoicing at a lame man being healed, looked at the man picking up his mat and said, hey, that's illegal. third principle is that a legalist's desire for perfect consistency often leads to ironic inconsistency. Because again, part of the goal of legalism is getting it right and consistency, and that is, in itself, can be a very good thing to be consistent, to get it right. Friends, we need to be very careful. I I said this a long time ago in our series. I didn't say it enough last week or the week before that or whatever. We need to be very careful to not think of these Pharisees as morons who didn't understand what God required and who were totally ungodly in every possible way, and we're somehow above them. Perhaps some of these Pharisees were a little more along for the ride than others. Some perhaps were a bit more nefarious than others. Some were indeed brilliant at understanding and applying the Bible. But, because legalism has a distorted view of the law and grace, what can happen, often, is a good desire to be consistent can get turned around and twisted up pretty quickly. And before you know it, you're dealing with some pretty ironic stuff, such as breaking the spirit of that law because of being so focused on the letter. And Jesus said in verse 12, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, of course it's not 
unlawful to do something good like care for your neighbor. The Sabbath is pro-good. The spirit of the Sabbath is good for God's people. Take this hypothetical example of following the minimum posted speed limit. I don't know that I've ever been in the situation where I've had to worry about that. But if you take that as an, as an illustration, think about this with me. When I was, the day after I graduated from high school, I was driving in a pretty serious rainstorm. And long story short, what happened is my vehicle hydroplaned. Have you ever hydroplaned? Not fun. Hydroplaned, I started to turn my car this way, but the car was going that way. Very disconcerting feeling. Rolled into the ditch, flipped my car multiple times. By God's grace, I was totally fine. My car, less so. Another time, just a few years ago, we were on our way to, to Michigan on Christmas Eve, and it was like the worst blizzard I can even imagine. That literally saw the car in front of us go swerve, swerve, spin into the ditch while we are driving like 40 miles an hour on Interstate 80. There are hazardous conditions that can be present while you are driving, right? But what if there's a minimum speed limit of, say, 40 miles an hour while there is a torrential downpour or a blizzard that's taking place and there are some cars slowing down to below 40? Well, if you are legalistically committed to the law of the minimum posted speed limit of 40 miles an hour, you could wind up violating the spirit of that law, which is people's safety, and wind up putting people in danger because the conditions are so hazardous that an even slower speed is probably in the best interest of everyone. Does that make sense? So an obsession with consistency regarding the letter can and often does ironically lead to inconsistency regarding the spirit. The fourth principle in this text is that legalism often chooses rules over relationships. I remember a, a mentor of mine years ago pounding into my mind and heart the phrase relationships over rules. Relationships over rules. Now, of course, we must know and believe and understand and live in light of the fact that God's rules are good. We should love them. And I'm excited that this summer in our Summer in Psalms series, I'm going to preach from Psalm 119. And we're going to see how God's people should view his commandments. They should obey them joyfully. But as we've said, legalism goes beyond God's stated word and into the territory of man-made rules or as I've said, applications of the law. And so, often, a legalist's interactions with others can become centered on whether or not their rules are being followed to their liking. Rules that are ultimately applications, but not God's actual law. And so then the idolatry of application diminishes the importance of that relationship. It begins to then affect the way you look at people in your church, in your family, the way you choose who you're going to get closest to, the assumptions that you're going to make about others. And that is part of what the Pharisees were doing here. This disabled man, this person in, you see in verse 9, 
their synagogue was less important to them than the application of how to keep their application of how to keep the Sabbath holy. And this too is ironic. The heart of God's law is all about relationships. Relationship with him and relationship with others. The greatest commandment is to love God with all that you are. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. A relationship with God driven by love for him and relationships with others driven by love for them. Relationships are at the heart of God's law. And isn't it also just the heart of this whole passage, verses 1 through 8, especially focused on our covenant relationship with God where he is asking for mercy or steadfast love, a relationship and obedience to him, not man-made rules. And then in verse 9 through 14, having to do with one's relationship to their neighbor, such as a disabled man in your congregation. Keeping the actual Sabbath, not the Pharisees' constructs around the Sabbath, is what the Pharisees should have done in their covenant relationship with God. And doing good to one another, such as this case of the man with the withered hand, being healed is what they should have cared about even more than following their rules that they had set up. So think about this for just a minute. What if a member of Redeemer Bible Church begins to sense the Lord's leading through the Holy Spirit and His Word to spend one of our E412 gatherings visiting someone sick in the hospital who needs the Lord? What if the only time you could schedule a dinner with an unbelieving friend or coworker or neighbor falls in the time slot normally reserved for your fellowship group gathering? What if your kids or your spouse is in special sort of emergency need of your devotion during the Thursday morning men's breakfast? Or what if your next door neighbor has an emergency? Would Missing one of our local church's applications of our devotion to fellowship and the word and prayer and discipleship be a violation of God's law? I don't think so. The Bible does not explicitly state thou shalt have Sunday school, or as we call it, E412. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt have small groups that meet every other week in our case, or every, every week in some other church's cases. I do think, this is a longer conversation for another time, but it needs to be said, that there is a biblical, clear biblical case for Sunday worship gatherings to be a command, but it's for a different time. You get the point. Sometimes choosing to prioritize relationship with God and with others and caring for our fellow human beings is more important than following the specific man-made application of the Spirit. That's the fourth principle, relationships over rules. Fifth, legalists are often blinded to their own shortcomings by their focus on everyone else's. As many or all of you know, my wife Kate teaches voice lessons and has done for years. She teaches private voice lessons and kind of smaller classes where you have a, a handful of kids instead of just one. And in one voice class, at one point in the past, she was having some problems with some of the children's behavior. And in case you're wondering, 
none of my children were in the room at that time. <laughs> she wound up sending a message to some of the parents of the, the, the whole group of parents of that class, just reminding everyone and requesting their support and encouraging their children to, to pursue behavior that is respectful and, and focused on learning together. And one of the parents replied to Kate that their child had indeed mentioned to them that day or night or whatever that some of the other kids had been misbehaving. But what was interesting is that it was their child who was the most disruptive in that class. Sometimes it's a lot easier to see someone else's shortcomings than it is to see ours, isn't it? And that's the case with all of us. That's definitely the case with the Pharisees in this passage. They were so focused on whether or not everyone else was keeping up their man-made rules that they were blind to their own great fault. Sixth, a legalist is often angered or upset by God's grace in someone else's life. Here's what I mean. The Pharisees were not happy about this man's withered hand being healed. And they should have been. As I said a moment ago, they probably knew this guy. It was their synagogue, verse 9. And so think of it this way. Just like the members of Redeemer know that my dad has Lyme disease and Yolanda has spina bifida and Holly's got immune system weaknesses and many other things that are represented in this room, those who attended this synagogue probably knew this guy with the withered hand and knew him to be a man with a withered hand. But when Jesus healed him, the Pharisees got mad and left and started conspiring how to kill Jesus. You see, they cared more about following their rules than caring for people when this guy that they probably knew personally experienced God's undeserved blessing and they weren't overjoyed at it like they should have been. Because all they could see was a breach of their system, their boundary around God's law. They wanted to trap Jesus so badly that when he heals this man, rather than the dis this display of divine power sending them to their knees in repentance and worship and leaping for joy at this great miracle and the kindness of God in this man's life. It sent them out of the synagogue with murderous intentions. That is what a prideful, hardened, legalistic heart can do. It can end up seeking to crucify the giver of life the giver of rest, God the Son. Legalism often has a really hard time rejoicing in God's undeserved favor, His grace dispensed in ways and to those, whose, those who those legalists are under the impression are not deserved. So when a legalist sees something that they think, well, that's not fair, that really isn't what that person deserves, or that probably could have been handled a little more justly, in my opinion, they get upset. But isn't that the point of grace? Undeserved love and kindness from God? Isn't that what's at the heart of what every Christian has received in Christ? The undeserved goodness and kindness of God? So seventh principle and finally, a legalist often prefers to reject the Savior than to humbly receive him. 
And this is ultimately the great tragedy of this text. Because the Pharisees had ample evidence to embrace Jesus as the Christ. His teaching was sound. His miracles displayed his deity. His authority as God's chosen one was clear. But instead of embracing Jesus in humility and repenting of their failure to obey the true heart of God's covenant law with his people, they rejected him. They rejected God. They rejected God the Son. He, Jesus, was sent by the Father to save people from their sins. And in Jesus' authority, his divinity, his messiahship, his saviorness was on full display in this event and in this text. But the Pharisees chose to prefer their commitment to their legalism than to embrace Jesus humbly. Talk about irony. Even as the Lord of the Sabbath stands before them and says it is lawful, it is sanctioned, it is good always to do good on the Sabbath. On that very Sabbath day, they plan a murder. They're doing evil on the Sabbath, not doing good on the Sabbath. And I sincerely hope and pray that no one within the sound of my voice will reject the Savior rather than humbly receive him. Rather than being like the Pharisees who were so prideful and so self-focused, oh my friend, if you never have, won't you embrace him? The Lord of the Sabbath, this Jesus the Christ, is a good and gracious Lord. He calls people as he did at the end of chapter 11, leading right up to this event that we're looking at today, He calls people to come to him for rest, for relief from the burden of pharisaical legalism, for freedom to enjoy and to do good. Isn't it interesting that this passage is not an account of Jesus correcting irreligious and immoral people? This is a passage about Jesus correcting religious conservatives like us. And it's a sad and sobering reminder that far too often, not always, religious conservatives like us often can care more about the structure and form and their pride-motivated performance than a real vital relationship with Jesus or real genuine patient, loving, gracious relationships with one another. But Jesus wanted his people to obey God's law. Jesus obeyed God's law. He obeyed it perfectly, never transgressed it. But what he wants for his people goes far deeper than surface level ritual obedience. What he wants for his people is a relationship with him. Jesus had come to save and to bring rest. And in the abundance of his mercy, he came to call the weary and burdened under the shame of their sin and the stress of their efforts at performance to rest in him. And rest, good news, friends, rest is found in him. 
and it's rest that cannot be found in mere obedience to man-made applications of God's law. It's rest that is not found in the teachings and applications of the Pharisees. It's rest that is only found in the grace of Christ. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we are amazed at the goodness and grace of our God to us in Christ. We are a bit appalled at the legalistic hearts of all of your people. Every one of us in some way or another and at some time or another has thought and spoken or acted in ways that distort the grace of God's relationship to the law of God. To whatever extent any of us here today may need to pursue repentance in this way, please help us to do so. To whatever extent any of us needs to make certain changes in our lives as a result of this text, please help us to do so. To whatever extent any of us needs to at least take a look and put some thought into the way that we think about the relationship of law and grace in our time and in our place. Please help us to do that. But Lord, help us not to legalistically avoid legalism. Help us to be people who are most focused on the glorious person and work of our Christ. And that then we will see everything else flow out of that. Certainly imperfectly, but certainly by your grace. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. You are the Lord of the Sabbath. You are the Lord of our lives. And we want to serve you. We want to follow you. Please help us to do that in this church, as individuals, as families, in our community, and for the sake of all nations. I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer for a few minutes quietly in our hearts.
Amen. As we continue through this passage and 